The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Franklin, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Our scripture reading today is from Acts 27, and it's about Paul being taken to Caesar by ship. This is a long reading, so I would suggest to you to shut your eyes and climb on board this ship as I read. Now when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete, close to the shore. But soon a tempestuous wind called the Northeaster struck down from the land, and when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. Running under the lee of a small island called Cauda, we managed to, with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then fearing that they would run aground on Certus, they lowered the gear and thus were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo, and on the third day they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship, and he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. When the fourteenth night had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. So they took a sounding and found 20 fathoms. A little farther on, they took a sounding again and found 15 fathoms. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, Unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. As day was about to dawn, 
Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, Today is the 14th day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. For therefore, I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength. For not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread, and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. Then they all were encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were in all 276 persons in the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. Now when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea, at the same time loosening the ropes that tied the rudders. Then hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach. But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow stuck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. The soldiers' plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. And so... It was that all were brought safely to land. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Debbie, for reading that <clears throat> story, that lengthy passage of scripture that involves a shipwreck. <clears throat> I, I was I spent some time with the youth the youth group, uh, the student ministry this week, and. Um, you know, I just asked as nicely as I could, uh, since they did a rap about the gift wrap thing previous week, if I could have a sea shanty this week, and uh, they did not do that. And I remember. <laughs> Actually, it was a lot of fun being with those students. It's amazing what we have going on here with our student ministry, the way Nate leads it, the way the students all just are participating. It was beautiful. It was so much fun uh, to be a part of that. Okay, so we're getting near to the end of our sermon series on Acts. We have this one and then one more. And um, <clears throat> Paul is on his way to Rome, and this has been in the works for a while now in the book of Acts. And one of the things that I, I want to focus on in this passage, in this story, is how when the Lord in makes a plan, when he has a purpose, when there's something that he intends to do, and we have some sense of what we think it is that he's going to do, um, we usually will also carry with us some sense of how we think he's going to go about doing it. And he almost never does it that way. 
almost never does it that way. And so that's where we are now. We have a map up here. I wanted you to see this. It's just, this is just going to stay up for the sermon um, so that you'll have a point of reference because we're going to follow some of that little red line there. Um, but we're entering the holiday season. And, and during this season, everything kind of shifts a little bit. Um, our schedules shift. We, we can be moving through the year in a rhythm, in a groove. We get to early October, mid-October, and we're kind, of, we're kind of chugging along. And all, you know, like we have all these, all the regularity with people and places and responsibilities. Everything's kind of dialed in. And then the holidays arrive and the rhythm changes. And we start doing things like uh, anticipating when and where to shop based on traffic. And we, we make meals and we plan for things and we, we reconnect with family. And, and, and sometimes this is great. For, for some of you, for some of you in this room, you're thinking, I can't wait to see every single family member that I'm about to see in the next six weeks. Um, but probably for most of you, you're thinking something a little different than that. And it can be really a disorienting time, the holidays, because your rhythm gets, gets changed. I'm a person, I like to be grounded. I love being grounded. I love predictability. I love being tethered to the land. I like having a predictable rhythm. I like knowing, generally speaking, what my week is going to hold. I can't remember the last time I had a week where I knew what it was going to hold, but I like that being in that place. And for me, candidly, this season that I've been in has been one of a lot of unpredictability. And maybe yours has too. And I've found myself really longing for structure and for predictability and rhythm and for peace, really. And it made me think of this C.S. Lewis quote uh, from my, my hands-down runaway favorite C.S. Lewis book is A Grief Observed. Um, I don't know if you've ever read it, but if you, if you haven't, I recommend that you read it. Um, it's a particularly helpful book to read if you are grieving. Um, but he says this. This is one of the things that he says about his own grief and his own relationship with the Lord, because one of the things that's unique about Lewis's book, A Grief Observed, is that he's, he's kind of processing his grief in real time in that book. So it's not just a scholarly reflection on grief after the fact, but it's the words of a man who's grieving in the present. And he's writing about his faith and his relationship with God, kind of this dance that he has going on with the Lord. And he says this, he says, God has not been trying an experiment on my faith or love in order to find out their quality. In other words, his suffering, his grief has not been God trying some experiment on him. He says, God has not been trying an experiment on my faith or love in order to find out their quality. He knew it already. It was I who didn't. In this trial, he makes us, he makes us occupy the dock, the witness box, and the bench all at once. He always knew, this is the part, he always knew that my temple was a house of cards. His only way of making me realize that fact was to knock it down. I love that. 
that if we are people who work to build systems that we feel like, okay, if I can get the system to work this way, then I can manage it. If all it is is a house of cards, then the most merciful thing that the Lord can do for us is to knock that house of cards over. One of the things that uncertainty brings us is this reminder that we can put as much structure and order to our lives as we want, but that doesn't mean that we're ever in control. You're never in control. All of our best laid plans, all of our strategies for managing life are in many ways houses of cards, they're illusions. And when that illusion is shattered, when that house of cards is knocked over, we get a great opportunity to lift our eyes, to see who is actually in control and what are they like. (laughs) And so that's what today's text shows us. And so I love that Debbie set us up by asking us to kind of close our eyes and get on the ship because that's what I want to do here is I want to take us into this. I want us to imagine this time before electricity. Imagine a time when sailors navigated the seas by maps and stars. And so imagine you're on one of these ships. It's a large wooden vessel out at sea and you're rising and you're falling in the waves and and hear the creaking of the swollen hull of the ship as it's bending and giving ever so slightly to the pressure and the weight of the water that it's displacing. And imagine the daylight hours where you stand at the railing And it's just endless ocean, stretching out in every direction, as far as you can see, to the horizon. And imagine it's night, and you're just lit by the light of the moon and the stars, and the moon casts shadows, it's bright in the darkness. And you're out there and you're helpless, really. What you are is you're just kind of this tiny dot carried along in this endless blue and you're, and you're incredibly vulnerable. But the reason you're there is because this is how you get from one outpost of civilization where there are things like rules and schedules and structures to another one of those outposts where there are rules and schedules and structures. But to get from one to the other, you have to set off into that wild and untamable place where you are just dependent on mercy, where anything can happen, and it's God's world. And this is where we find Paul in today's text. To everybody around him, men and weather control his fate. And Paul is the only one who knows, and it saves their lives. He's the only one who knows that that's just an illusion. They're not in control of anything, thankfully. So Festus takes Paul from his jail in Caesarea, and he puts Paul and some other prisoners in the care of a centurion named Julius, 
who escorts them to Nero. That's his job. And so he secures a ship from the uh, Andromidium, from, from a, city, a city called Andromidium, which is uh, scheduled to then skirt the coastline of Asia, which you can see here. And the way that Luke writes, you know that Luke is on this journey because he talks about we. we. We got on a vessel here and a storm came and we did everything we could. So Luke is actually with Paul. Luke writing the book of Acts is with Paul here. He's been permitted to travel with him. And so the journey so far has taken them a lot longer than they planned. And they were getting into the dangerous winter season. And the sailors wanted to press on for Italy, but Paul said to the captain of the ship, Sir, if we press on, I fear we will suffer for it. Cargo will be lost. Men will die. But Julius deferred to the captain and he deferred to the owner of the ship, both of whom really just wanted to press on, at least to Phoenix, which is on the southern tip of Crete. You see Crete there. Uh, Phoenix would be right about where the R is in the word Crete. Fair Havens is where they were. It wasn't a really suitable place to harbor for the winter, but if they could make it down that coastline just another 40 miles west, they'd find that safe harbor in Phoenix and they could harbor there and then they could reassess and figure out what they were going to do next. And as they considered their options, the, the north winds that were so pressuring them died down and then this gentle wind from the south came along and opened what appeared to them uh, a safe passage to get down to Phoenix. But before they could reach Phoenix, this great northeaster swept up and down the mountains from Crete and pushed the ship away from the island, and they got caught in a tempest. And the sailors had to just yield to the wind and let it carry them out to sea. And they knew that they were at the mercy of the winds, and they prepared themselves for this. To the south of Crete is a geological feature called the Sands of Sirtis. And it was always on a sailor's mind when they were in the Adriatic Sea here. And it was this shoal that would become a, just kind of a boneyard for ships that ran aground because the water would get suddenly shallow and the ship would run aground and it wouldn't be able to move and nobody else would dare to rescue you lest they get stuck too. And so they were trying to just skirt right through, threading a needle here. And so the sailors dropped their drag anchors to slow their speed. They tried to keep the ship as steady as possible. And when the wind persisted to batter the ship throughout the night and into the following day, they began to just jettison cargo to try to lighten the ship. When that didn't work, the next day they threw the beam that held the mainsail and its tackle overboard, hoping to make themselves a smaller target for the wind. They got rid of anything that they could afford to lose. And then they started getting rid of things that they couldn't afford to lose. And this storm persisted, these winds, for the next 11 days. And every night, Paul prayed for the Lord to calm the sea, but the storm just raged on. And one night while he was praying in these surging barracks below deck, an angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, do not be afraid, Paul. No one with you will die because God has appointed for you to stand before Caesar. On the 14th day of the storm, 
after many days lost at sea, the sailors heard a sound that they knew. And it was the sound of breakers in the water. That the, the, the ocean was making a different sound. And they knew that they were getting close to land. And so at midnight, they took a sounding that measured 20 fathoms. And then a little bit after that, they took another and it measured 15 fathoms. And so they lowered their anchors to slow the ship and just prayed for daylight to get here before the ocean floor so that they could see what lay ahead for them. And they conferred with one another that this possible land that may be coming would be their only hope of rescue. But the problem was they didn't have enough boats to ferry everybody from the ship to the land because there were over 270 people on the boat. And so the sailors began to lower the, the lifeboat down, claiming that we just want to use the anchors on the ship, put them in the water as well to help add to the drag. But Paul knew that they were actually planning to abandon ship. And so he said to Julius, if these sailors leave in that boat, we will never see them again, and you and your men will die. And so Julius ordered his men to cut the ropes on their ship that tied the boat to the ship, and the sailors watched in horror as their only small boat fell into the water and drifted away. And I like to imagine that in that moment, Julius gave those sailors a look and a shrug that said, now what? And there they were, all of them, on that boat. As dawn was coming, the weather began to die down. A hint of morale began to return. And the crew wanted to lighten the ship even more. And so they decided that they would take their cargo, the reason they were at sea in the first place, grain, and that they would jettison that as well. But the men hadn't eaten a proper meal in days, and so Paul urged everybody, get your fill first. Eat as much as you can first. He said, you're going to need your strength since not one of you is going to die. And then he took bread, and he blessed it, and he broke it, and he ate it in the manner of the Lord's Supper, there on that little speck of a vessel in that endless blue. And he prayed. And encouragement found its way into the passenger spirit and people began to eat. They began to eat their fill. Christians, Jews, Greeks, Romans, all of them. And I imagine conversation and laughter soon filled the air because they were beginning to entertain the possibility of hope that dawn was breaking over the horizon. And when they had eaten their fill, they threw the remaining grain into the sea. And as they were doing this, they saw it. They saw land in the distance. They saw a bay with a beach. They didn't recognize the island, but they were grateful for it. And they turned the ship and they sailed straight for it. 
And while they were still some distance from the shore, they struck this sandy reef and they lodged there. Then the bow got stuck and the waves were pushing them deeper into it. They couldn't go forward, they couldn't go back. And the surf was beating against the sides of the ship and the ship's stern began to come apart. So they're all on this vessel, it's stuck, there's land. The boat is falling apart under their feet and they need to abandon ship and they need to do it quickly. And so the soldiers discussed what they were gonna do because they had prisoners. And if any of these prisoners escaped under their watch, if, 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 if a soldier let a prisoner escape, it, it could mean that that soldier would be put to death too. And so they thought, well, maybe we just need to put all of our prisoners to death. Maybe we just need to kill them all. And Julius objected. He said, no, 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 I need, I need my prisoners alive because he needed Paul alive. He needed to take Paul to Rome. And Julius was a soldier who was committed to his mission, but also he had a sense of indebtedness to Paul at this point. Because if Paul's words to him were true, Julius understood even though there was mystery around it, he understood that he was alive because of his association with Paul. The only reason he was alive was because of the God Paul worshiped. And so Julius made the call and he ordered those who could jump or those who could swim to jump into the water and to make their way toward the shore. And for those who couldn't, he said, grab a hold of wreckage planks, whatever you can find floating in the water and use them to make for land because no one would die that day. Not if Julius could help it. Imagine him climbing up onto that beach, sort of flopping over, sitting there on the sand, watching as every single person from the ship makes their way. All of them accounted for. Not a single one was lost, not one. The text goes on to tell us more of what happened once they got onto the island. It says the people from the island came to assist the castaways. They told them they'd landed on an island called Malta. They took them in. They made a fire for them because the night was cold and they were wet. And Paul went to go put a bundle of sticks that he had gathered onto the fire and a, and a viper, a poisonous snake, was in that pile and it latched onto his hand. And the islanders saw the viper that had bit Paul and they knew he's gonna be dead within minutes. Knowing that Paul was a prisoner, they assumed that he must have been a murderer or something incredibly vile to have deserved such a fate. But Paul just kind of shook the snake off into the fire and he kept about his work. And the islanders just watched him. And he was just unfazed. And they just kept looking at him. And nothing happened. And they said, he must be a god. He must be a god because he survives this bite from this particular snake. And Paul said, I'm not a god. I'm just a man who has an appointment with Caesar. And so 
the chief of the island, a man named Publius, he, he goes to the shipwrecked men and he shows them grace and hospitality for three days. And Paul learns that Publius's father was sick with fever and dysentery and he asks, can I, can I visit him and pray with him? And the chief agrees and he brings Paul to where his father lay dying and Paul puts his hands on the old man and he prays. And the chief's father is instantly healed. And the chief thanks Paul through his tears and when others heard what had happened, those with diseases came to Paul and each one of them was cured. And the island people cared for the men from the ship and they tended to their needs. And the men from the ship cared for the islanders and they wintered together for three months, we're told, until the seas were once again safe to turn north and make their way past Sicily up to Rome. When we look at this story, there are lots of applications we can draw from it. We can say, God is greater than the storm. He is, he's greater than the storm. Whatever your storm is, he's greater than the storm. We can say, God will do more than we think is possible. We could say, this is a good picture of, of understanding that the conventions of man, even the mighty Roman Empire, which I still think about every day, are no match for the will of God, right? Here's the application I would like to leave us with. And it's this. All of your attempts and all of my attempts to exercise control by putting structure and systems around ourselves, all the rules that we try to put around things and people so that we can avoid pain, these things are no match for the untamable power of God. They are houses of cards, and because they are, it is a mercy for him to knock them down. This means that the Lord can pick us up in the safe confines of the worlds we try to order by the scruff of our necks, and he can set us down wherever he wants, any time he wants, for any reason he wants. And there is nothing we can do to stop him. For every soul on that ship, they were in the hands of that God through fog and storm and winter. But what we often fail to remember is that we are in the hands of God all the time through fog and storm and winter and also in those seasons when we just seem to be sailing along no problem. And sometimes the ship that we've built starts falling apart beneath our feet while we're gliding into a sandbar. And all that's left to do is jump into the sea and swim for shore and just abandon it. And often when these sorts of things happen, that's when we wonder where God is. As though his role 
is to keep us from storms, as though his role is to keep us from the unraveling of all of the hard work we've put in to trying to nail everything down. But God doesn't promise us that he will do that. He tells us that his will can't be thwarted. He tells us that he will accomplish his purpose and no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand. But that puts us in a place where we're not Caesars sitting on thrones in Rome. It puts us in a place where we are vulnerable, helpless people adrift on a little vessel in an endless blue. And we are at the mercy of God. And that's when we see and we remember it's not, it's not a ship that was carrying Paul to Rome. It was the maker of the ocean that was carrying Paul to Rome. It was the painter of the stars it was the sender of the fog. It was the architect of the ocean floor. It was the creator of the viper. I'm sure Paul's journey from Caesarea to Rome is not how any one of us would have drawn it up. But can you see how the Lord preserved his word against unimaginable odds. Why? Why would he do this? So that you might know him. So that his gospel, the message of the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ would make its way around the world to find you. Life prevailing over death. The promise of everything being made new. You have never been in control. Pray with me. Father, I confess, and I know I'm not alone in this room, I confess to you that I want to find ways to be in control. I want to find ways to shore things up, to nail things down, to get everything in its proper place, to lock things in. Even up here at this podium, this perspective that I have where I arrange my pages and my glasses and my coffee in just a certain way so it feels right to me. So I'm familiar up here that I have these little fastidious rhythms and ways that I do things. Lord, we, we try to put order around things and you call us to put order around things and you tell us to bring order to this world. But when we start looking to the order that we make or the order we, try to, we attempt to make as being where our security really lies, we're making an idol out of it, Father. Forgive us for that. Help us to be people who don't trust in such small things for our security. Make us to be people who trust in great things for our security. That we could be in a speck of a vessel adrift in an endless blue ocean 
and be completely and perfectly safe because of the one who made that ocean and controls that weather. The one who is the giver and the author of life. Father, help us in the end to recognize when the things that we worry about and stress about and give ourselves away to are just houses of cards. Knock them over in your mercy and help us to see the strength of who you are and how you hold us up. And it's in your name, Jesus, we pray these things. Amen.